I guess it was the newspaper reporting on an air war in Europe during World War I that got me interested in flying. I was an avid reader and searched the libraries looking for information on flying. I think all the articles I read finally convinced me that I should be up there flying and not just reading about it. So I started searching for a flying school. And at first I thought it would be easy, just walk in and sign up. I didn't realize that I had two strikes against me. Now I remember hearing of a few women pilots before the war, but I'd never seen one. The other strike against me was my color. No one had ever heard of a black woman pilot in 1919, but I refused to take no for an answer. My mother's words always gave me strength to overcome any obstacles. Bessie Coleman, the first African-American and Native American woman pilot, receiving her international pilot's license in France on June 15, 1921. Bessie's story is one that is filled with determination and the example of believing in yourself and taking action which makes all the difference in the world. Today, I share her story, along with Dorothy Cochran, who's a curator for general aviation in the aeronautics department at the National Air and Space Museum, and Sarah Fisher, executive director at the International Women's Air and Space Museum, and Gigi Coleman, the great niece of Bessie Coleman, and we all come together to share her story. It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own. From one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes, start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be. Bessie Coleman's mother always urged her to become somebody. She really wanted her to learn to read because she couldn't read. So she would borrow books from a traveling library, hoping that she could help Bessie develop a love for reading. And that she did. Bessie was an avid reader. And it was there that she found more about the world outside of her small town in Texas where she was born. But how does a young girl born in a small town in Texas find her way to France to get her international pilot's license? I asked Dorothy Cochran to start us off with Bessie's story. She had been in Chicago for a while, segregated Chicago, uh, having traveled up from Texas um, to look for better opportunity. And she'd done a variety of jobs there, but was, was looking for something different in, in her life and you know what, what to become as a, as a young woman. Uh, there in in Chicago, her brothers and uh, they, you know, she had followed some of her siblings up to Chicago, and and she was like I say, trying to figure out, you know, what she wanted to do. She was a manicurist, and you know, doing things that that most of the the women at that time um, were doing. Well, what inspired her to consider 
flying, especially for a young woman and then a young black woman at that time, that would definitely be something unusual. Yeah, it certainly was unusual. Um, she actually was uh, speaking with her brothers and uh, they were kind of taunting her about, oh, what, what are you going to do? And one of them mentioned, um, he was a World War I veteran, mentioned that he had uh, encountered uh, female pilots in France and, and knew that women were flying in France and, and said, how about that? And she got excited about it. It just kind of clicked with her. And she basically said, you know, now you've called it for me. That's it. You know, you just called it for me. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, from then on, that's what she pursued. Well, that just shows you sometimes that sibling sort of taunting and uh, rivalry that can go on between, between siblings can lead to something really grand. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It really is. Um, it's uh, And, you know, like I say, for her to decide that is one thing. And uh, but, you know, that gave her the drive that she was looking for something different. And uh, the and then she was ready and able to pursue it. It's the 1920s and there's a young black girl who wants to learn to become a pilot. What was the nation like? What was the world like at that time? Would it welcome a young girl? With these ambitions? I asked Sarah Fisher to fill us in on what was going on in the 1920s that Bessie would have to face to become a pilot. Let's take some time and let's talk about Bessie Coleman. Really what life was like for for Bessie and what she what she's shown to generations over the past 100 years of what they can achieve. Like she she started to crack that that glass ceiling yeah. And break down some of those barriers but it wasn't in one fail swoop she started wow. she started to do it and just imagine what she could have accomplished had she not met um her tragic and, yes untimely uh, death yeah 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 very very tragic you know what what really makes like bessie coleman's story and experience so important is because it wasn't all just Amelia Earhart and Louise Thaden and Mary Von Mock and Blanche Noyes, uh, Poncho Barnes and the whole Motley crew um, of female pilots in the 1920s who, you know, we know Amelia because when she was, she was a gifted, skilled pilot, but her husband was also her publicist. <laughs> so yeah. she had a little extra, extra boost there. You know, the 1920s was not all sunshine and rainbows mm -mm. for for non-white communities. You mm -hmm. know, uh, if you just look at the United States, we have to we have to understand what was what was our society and culture like? You know, the 1920s in 1920, we had the release of Birth of a Nation, the the most racist movie ever released. And that was happening around the time Bessie was trying to, you know, pursue flying lessons but having the door shut in her face essentially time and time again um you have at least here in ohio you have the boom of the kkk membership rosters separate was not equal let's talk about all of these undertones and these and you know just the reality of still grappling with our post civil war you know mm -hmm. 60 odd years later um, it's something that I think that drives home just the sheer impact and of 
what Bessie did and how she was able to overcome. And really, if you can have any type of word for her, she she was tenacious and mm-hmm. she persevered. And I think in 2023, you know, it's about dang time <laughs> that that we share her story because it was not easy. Bessie was up against insurmountable odds. But what inspired her? What kept her going? Because most people in those situations probably would have stopped. But Bessie didn't. What inspired her? I asked Sarah to fill us in on that. Bessie was inspired by many of the stories of um, of American servicemen returning home from World War One, which, you know, they were describing what it was like to see uh, planes flying over the battlefield, um, the feeling of flying themselves and how it felt so free and exhilarating because World War One from 1914 to to 1917 1918 when the U.S. started their drawdown uh in return home you know that was our first modern war and what really caught Bessie's attention was the aviation side of it you know everyone had heard of the Wright brothers um you know Bessie may have heard of Harriet Quimby who was the first American woman to earn her pilot's license in 1911 um and who also happened to meet an untimely death in a plane crash um, in, a year later. But, you know, Bessie, Bessie caught that aviation bug when she was a very young woman in her early 20s. And she sought to pursue flying lessons. But, you know, she had those doors closed on her because not only was she a woman, because it was deemed to be unfeminine um, and out of out of what was expected and accepted of women to want to pursue aviation, she was also a black woman. And that is something even living in the greater Chicagoland area is, is a point to hit on because if, even if you were in a quote unquote Northern state, it doesn't mean that there wasn't those preconceived prejudgments on, on someone based on, based on their, their sex, based on the color of their skin. So she, she, as a young woman, like she could have, she could have let her dream, you know, fall to the wayside. Mm -hmm. Um, But she, she was very involved with her community and actually sought out um, Robert Abbott, who was the editor of the Chicago Defender, which is a historically black newspaper. And, you know, just told him of, of her dream and like, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to open a a flight school. Like I want to make sure that no one in our community has the door shut in our face. Like I have. And it was really through that conversation that, that really ticked, ticked it over into making that dream a real possibility because he helped to, to finance, to pay for her learning French uh, so that she could go to France to earn that pilot's license because there were no opportunities in the U S and she was working in a barbershop when she first was hearing these stories of American servicemen returning from World War One, So she didn't have a direct path uh, to, to achieving her dream. She had to, she had to go through a labyrinth um, as a young woman and it could have, it could have deterred her, but yeah. she persevered for sure. 
and tenacious, as you mentioned, is definitely a great word for her because, I mean, there had to be a lot of naysayers as well, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the face mm -hmm. of people like Robert Abbott, who helped her, there had to be a whole another set of people, not only whites, but I would think also maybe even her own community that mm -hmm. may have said to her, you know, you shouldn't be doing that as a woman. Mm -hmm. Are you know, as a black woman, you know, you're not going to get those opportunities. I can just imagine some of the things that were said to her um, mm -hmm. to maybe try and influence her. But there she was strong enough to believe in herself and keep pushing, pushing through it all. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's something, you know, she had, she did have a, a family community that, that supported her. It's not just, you know, members of, of the, the white community, saying and trying to deter her closing these doors in her face saying no we don't even have these we're not even offering these classes when in fact they are it's also folks within her own community as well because to them she's a woman um, but also folks realizing and understanding again like we were talking about earlier the the time in which she was living that mm -hmm. like folks folks in in our communities understanding okay yes i see your dream i hear it i think you'd be great at it but no one's gonna no one's gonna help you like you just you, like it's it's you're gonna you're gonna draw attention to yourself and then like you're opening yourself up for all sorts of scrutiny or criticism or you know let down heartbreak whatever it is like so i think again we have to look from the human the humanist side if you will of of her story too that I'm sure that she was getting hit from from every from every direction, the naysayers. But she did, she was able to 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 choose who she listened to in terms of her her circle of trust, if you will, folks that were her cheerleaders and her supporters. And I think if that's any type of message that we can relay to like our current young people, um, is you know a lot of times we we harp and focus in on the negative yeah. and the naysayers, but who's, who's supporting you? Who's saying you got this, mm -hmm. who is there helping you, you know, get back up after you've been knocked down. And I think that's something that we all struggle with, but for Bessie, she had that, she had that, that support system that really helped, helped to get her to, to now being on a on a, a u.s quarter um and and even after you know bessie bessie was in another plane crash one uh well before she she met her unfortunate um and tragic uh death and she she was also defiant because people started to write her off saying oh well okay she she was really badly injured she's not gonna she's not gonna fly again like the story of bessie coleman is just gonna go off to the wayside no right. she flat out said you just wait mm -hmm. like i'm coming back and i'm coming back stronger and better than ever and so i think she she was also not afraid of a challenge naysayers and, and negative comments and negative uh, uh sort of pressure that you can get can be really a big part of someone's um, not moving forward with something that they mm -hmm. want to do and missing opportunities. And to mm -hmm. be able to surpass that and be strong enough and have a support system that tells you, you know, you can do this, is, is so much a part of the story 
uh, mm -hmm. too, is how people over overcome that. Because I can just only imagine in 1921 <laughs> that mm -hmm. she was getting that from all, oh, yeah. from all sides. Definitely, definitely. Yes. With all the naysayers of the time, the discrimination, and of course the attitudes about women's roles during that time, she was able to put all of that aside and persevere to learn French and go to France to get her pilot's license. Dorothy Cochran steps in to tell us more about that. The irony or the interesting thing is, you know, after she decided to do it, um, she could find no one to train her. First of all, there weren't that many instructors. And secondly, they were primarily, they were all white. Um, Robert Abbott, who um, ran the Chicago Defender newspaper uh, and, and the, the newspapers in Chicago and around the country, the, uh, the Defenders. And um, she, uh, he was very knowledgeable and advised her that, as like her brothers had said, women were, were flying in France. And if she was going to, to pursue that, she should learn French and start saving her money and seeing about going to France to learn to fly. And that's exactly what she did. Now she learned French. She did not speak it until she decided to go uh, to France, that this was the only path that she could foresee and that, and that people had advised her about. And um, so she learned French. Um, you know, and obviously once she got there, uh, she learned it on the spot, but she learned enough to get around. Uh, she learned enough to be able to travel there and, and uh, look for aviation schools and finally find one. It really shows the determination that that was something that she truly, really did want want to do. She um, found uh, a flight school that was a, a, a very uh, well-known flight school in France, the Cadron Brothers. Um, they were... Um, manufacturers of aircraft that were used in World War I, and they had a very good flight school, and uh, she was accepted into their flight training program. And, um, you know, it, it, it took a little while, but June 15th, 1921, to finally earn her pilot's license. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this was uh, in France, and there's a, an, a Federation Aeronautique Internationale there, which issued licenses. And that was an important um, license because it was the more highly acknowledged license in the world. You could earn a license here in the United States from the National Aeronautic Association. But if you wanted to do professional activities, which were just being thought of at the time as flying and an exhibition flight and things like that, um, this was the license to have. So, you know, she really did, um, you know, she, she did all the right things and got a license that would then allow her to pursue her goals. Um, so while she was in Chicago, she had a good life in the African-American community. Um, and so, you know, uh, but she wanted to do more. And when, you, when she stepped out into flight, there weren't any other African-Americans doing it at this time in the United States. There were a couple of uh, men who had flown in World War I um, in France and for the United States and, and for France. But back in the United States, it was just unheard of. So um, when she got to France, you know, she was able then to check out a couple of different um, flight schools. And there were, uh, and so she found this one, which is a very, like I say, very well-known one. And she was accepted. There were no issues. You know, she, she did, took all of the training 
Um, she learned how to fly there and that was that, you know, so it, it made it, she didn't have to endure the segregation and the discrimination that she faced when she returned to the United States. Um, but when she did return to the United States, she was able then to perform exhibition flights before integrated crowds. So, you know, she was able to push the envelope and, and to push um, into the world of flight Af as an African-American. It wasn't easy. And in fact, it was very difficult. And there were many times when um, she went for months and months without any type of activity. Um, so that, that's kind of the differences between uh, Europe and the United States. France welcomed her with open arms so that she could achieve her dream of becoming a pilot. Dorothy tells us more. It's the Caldron Brothers uh, Flight School. There were uh, veterans of World War I who were doing the flight instruction there. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, it, it, it would have been, it was, like I say, a respected flight school, um, you know, run by people uh, who were, had engaged in flying in uh, World War I. Um, she did fly a Newport 82 trainer, which was um, a... Pretty, you know, one of the, the more basic type of aircraft, uh, trainer aircraft implies that this is what you can teach students in to learn the basics. And it's, you know, got more gentle qualities than, than some of the others, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, fighters and things like that. But uh, she, it took her two months uh, to get her license in France. And she came back to the United States after getting her license. And then she realized that she still didn't have the skills that she needed if she wanted to do about the only type of flying that was available, which was exhibition flying. So she, again, saved up money and, and you know, there were supporters of hers who donated to her cause. And she went back to Europe and did another two months at, at another flight school and then also did uh, about two, two and a half months of flying in Germany again, flying with some former World War I pilots. So, you know, she, uh, she really did what she needed to do. And, you know, it took quite a lot of effort. It took money. It took determination. But when she then returned to the United States for the second time uh, on September 3rd, 1922, she borrowed a Curtis Jenny at Curtis Field on Long Island, uh, New York, and made the first public flight by a Black woman in the United States. And uh, so, you know, uh, that's that's the type of, you know, that, that, that's the way that that any uh, pilot at the time was getting into aviation. But again, it was much harder for her. and There were much less opportunities for her. You can imagine the curiosity and the interest in a young black woman doing expedition flying, barnstorming. I started to tell us a little bit about that kind of created her own opportunities. And, um, you know, when she came back to Chicago after that first flight in Long Island, she did put on a, 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 a exhibition flight in front of 2,000 people at Checkerboard Field in Chicago. Um, and then, you know, she went scouting for more opportunities, more places, but it always costs money. You have to find a plane. She did not own a plane at this time. She would borrow them and uh, then find someone who was willing to, to help put on a show. Um, she went to California eventually, but there were, you know, great amounts of time when she didn't um, fly. And then in um, 
1925, she did a series of flights in Texas. And she was really, at that point, getting more established into, uh, you know, a barnstorming exhibition flights as they, as these flights were becoming, and air circuses and exhibition flights were becoming more popular. Flight itself was still very new to people. And barnstorming was being done, so it would create crowds and people would come in, but she couldn't join one of these more established groups. There were a couple of different groups that were, you know, in, in various locations uh, in the country, the Gates Flying Circus and others like that. And you know, she wasn't accepted into that as an African-American. Um, she was going to do a, a, a publicity flight in California, but unfortunately crashed. But that would, if she had done that successfully, she might have been able to get in, you know, to some exhibition flights out there. So, you know, the airplanes that she um was able to to try to fly and borrow were not always in, in superb quality uh you know uh, they were not always in great shape and uh, it was just hard to to be to be accepted by anyone else so she was doing it on her own and that's what made it so incredibly difficult but that's where her perseverance came in um so yeah there were people who thought women shouldn't be flying there were people who definitely thought that african-american should not be flying so, you know, she faced all that, and but yet she was still on the cusp of, of being able to become a good performer. And then she wanted to open her own uh, flight instruction school so that she could then enable other African-Americans and, and anyone really, uh, you know, just have a, a free and open, not free, but an, an open uh, flight instruction school, you know, open to anyone. Now, did she ever own her own plane? She was had just acquired a plane in 1926. Um, she had had this, she identified a, a Curtis Jenny in, in um, Texas that she wanted and she put a down payment on it and she did some more flights, you know, to be able to, to finish off the payments. And so she, uh, her mechanic had just flown this plane that she did acquire um, to uh, a Florida air show where she was going to fly. And uh, that would be the first aircraft that, that she would own um, at the time. And um, so she flew that plane on April 30th, 1926. Um, she went up uh, for a flight. And uh, unfortunately, um, there was a complication. She was with her mechanic and she was scouting areas of the ground to do a parachute jump because she also did parachute jumps out of airplanes because that's also part of the spectacle of the exhibition flights. So then she would have someone else flying the plane and she was, uh, so she didn't have her seatbelt uh, attached or uh, around her um, because she was leaning out of the airplane looking for a suitable spot to do um, this parachute jump. And unfortunately, the plane became destabilized and, and uh, flipped over and, and went into a dive and, and both she and the mechanic were killed. So, you know, it's right on the cusp of her really breaking out, just getting her own airplane, being a known entity in uh, Southern Exhibition Flying that this tragedy occurs. Yeah, that is really, really sad. Well, her untimely death meant that she would not be able to achieve her most cherished dream, and that was starting a flight school. Dorothy shares how much this dream inspired so much of what she did. Having had to make this journey, incredible journey, 
to France uh, to become a pilot. That was her main goal when she came back was that was her ultimate goal was to be able to open her own flight instruction school so that others would have an easier time. You know, she was enamored with aviation. It was her career. It's what she wanted to do. And she wanted to bring others along. And uh, obviously, if you get more people involved, they could put on their flying exhibitions together and it becomes just more of of a viable business. You know, she wanted to be a viable businesswoman operating her flight school that would be open to all and to, to serve aviation, to serve African-Americans, to serve the general public. And how far did she get with that before uh, the untimely uh, air accident? Well, it was still just a dream. I mean, she did not, you know, she had just purchased her own aircraft herself after, you know, uh, after these years of, you know, of she'd gotten her license in 21 and she was only able to finally purchase an aircraft in 26 so, you know, that that speaks to how difficult it was for her. Mm-hmm. She, this was her goal. That's why she was doing exhibition flights, to save up money, to become well-known, and then to gain backers who would agree to help her establish and fund, help her fund a flight school. So it was still just a dream. It was her ultimate goal. Bessie spent a lot of her time barnstorming, exhibition flying. But what was the climate during that time for that type flying? not only for black women, but women in general, and also men. I asked Sarah Fisher to give us a few details about that. In 1919 through 1921, and even up to like 1924, we still did not have a lot of access for for men and women um, of color pursuing aviation and anything related to that. But there mm. were some. Um, and that is also attributed to, okay, so where are folks, you know, mostly living in the U S are they living in more of a rural setting where there's not a lot of access or are they more in, uh, an, uh, an urban setting where there are a couple different flight schools and there's an airport where they could operate out of. Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms of the, the scene for the barnstormers, it was predominantly, you know, white men but you also have other women like uh poncho barnes for instance uh poncho was one of hollywood's early stump pilots actually uh she she also flew over mexico city she participated in the 1929 uh women's transcontinental air derby with amelia Earhart. um but you know poncho was a woman she was a she was a white woman um she also had a non-gender non-gendered gendered excuse me name um Mm -hmm. with poncho so like that is something that you know there there's a lot of implicit and explicit bias so in terms of uh, of the male side for for barnstormers there were there were a small handful of of men uh african-american men uh, as well and those men were predominantly ones that flew or were a part of aviation during world war one so you see a lot of that that uh bleed over if you will into the realm of air shows and air entertainment if you will so i'm i'm sure people came just out of curiosity to just see her fly just just to as people say just so here in the south just to lay eyes on her bessie's untimely death 
It's really sad. It's still sad to hear about it and just know all that aviation lost with her passing. But her dream that she was working so hard for was picked up by many who she influenced. I asked Sarah Fisher to step in now and tell us a bit about the women, and not only women, but men, people who love aviation, all of us really can be inspired by her story. Of all the pilots in the world, you know, less than 7% of all pilots are women. Mm-hmm. And, and a much, much smaller percentage are, you know, women, women of color. Yeah. So it, we haven't, we haven't seen that change, that influence, that long, that long lasting like reverberation of, of, you know, what Bessie did, uh, you know, have it a higher percentage, if you will. Um, but we're starting to slowly see more change in aviation as a whole so we just got to keep fighting that fight that she and others started 100 years ago well yeah i mean that you bring up a really good point because even myself as an african-american woman if i get on an airplane and i see an african-american pilot it could even be a male Mm -hmm. one but if i see Mm -hmm. a female i do a double take yeah because i mean it it is it's it's still rare yes everywhere to you know to see that uh, mm-hmm. And working in the travel industry, I mean, I've, I've, I've you know come in contact with you know some female pilots, but it's it still is just not what you normally see. Uh, mm-hmm. You can pretty much bet when you get on your flight <laughs> that it's going mm-hmm. to probably be a white male, and mm-hmm. uh, if it is a female, probably white. Uh, but then when you have the black female pilot, it, it does it definitely does stand out. Now you mentioned Dorothy Darvey, who was also inspired by by Bessie Coleman, who was a parachutist herself. But who are some of the other African-American women that you could say were really influenced by her? She was she was from Chicago and she was able to see Bessie's dream realized. So Bessie had this dream that she told to Robert Abbott ahead of getting her pilot's license in France that Bessie wanted to open a flight school. For, for her community, for for those in the greater Chicagoland area, those who uh, were people of color, so that they could have at least access to just discover aviation, if you will, to discover what it was like to be in a plane, to fly for the first time, even if you're just a passenger, or to learn to fly. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, because Bessie died so so young like she was only in her early 30s when yeah. she when she did die um in in that horrific plane crash you know she never saw the dream to open the flight school realized she was getting closer to seeing it realized but then that story was cut short and that's where willa brown was able to pick up that dream and take it to the finish line and uh willa brown with her husband in the late 1930s established the coffee school of aeronautics at the harlem airport in chicago and it was there that they actually would you know conduct training for many of the men who would go on and qualify and fly with tuskegee and become the the among the first tuskegee airmen um heading into world war ii and willa brown herself instructed 200 
of those men. Because one of the things to to qualify for for Tuskegee was you had to have X number of flight hours and X number of like ratings. And that's kind of hard to just say, oh, yeah, I have that. You have to have proof and you have to earn it. Well, Willa Brown was part of the Civil Air Patrol, which during World War II oversaw all of the domestic airfields in airports so that you know we have the military to do all of their stuff in the various uh theaters of the war but the civil air patrol they were in charge of like homeland security if you will and Mm -hmm. their job was also to provide opportunities for american servicemen to bump up their flight hours so that they could qualify for the different programs whether it was specifically for tuskegee whether it was specifically for the army um, for the Army Air Forces or the Navy. So Willow Brown herself instructed over 200 of the men who would go on and and fly with the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, Willow Brown also was the was the first black female commissioned officer in the Illinois Civil Air Patrol. And she was one who started uh, a flower drop flyover of Bessie's grave um after after her death that became an annual thing um it had been done continuously every year until 2020 because we know the pandemic threw monkey wrenches and everything into all of our operations Mm -hmm. um worldwide but uh willa brown also during her life successfully uh lobbied uh lobbied for the desegregation of the u.s army she was one that was able to see Bessie's Bessie's dream realized and herself inspire, like continue continue paying it forward, inspiring those who came after. Um, another woman that that was inspired by Bessie Coleman is Mae Jemison, who uh, 30 years ago became the first African-American woman in space yeah. uh, during the shuttle era in uh, 1992 in like uh, summer 1992 Mm -hmm. um she credited bessie with really showing her hey if you dream it you can be it and another another woman who just made history as well that you know transcends also um you know just aviation is jessica watkins and jessica watkins is a nasa astronaut she um she made history in the spring of 2022 when she became the first African-American woman on a long duration mission to the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. When Mae Jemison flew to space in 1992, she was only in space for about a week because that's like, that was, that was how long like the shuttle missions averaged, you know, about right. a week, week and a half. Right. But when we we when we say a long duration mission we mean like at least five months mm-hmm. on the international space station um stephanie wilson uh another another nasa astronaut she did go to the international space station but she was only up there for a resupply mission and for like a couple experiments so she was up there for maybe like two two and a half weeks something mm-hmm. like that and then she came then she returned back to earth so Jessica Watkins was also inspired by by those who came before her that these women's stories are 
important to our understanding and our self our our sense of place um and who we who we are where where we've come from and where we're going as as a community um let's talk about let's talk about Bessie and just how how her influence a hundred and two years later is still inspiring all of us to to keep going and to persevere. Bessie Coleman, the first African American and Native American woman to earn an international pilot's license. Wow, we're so proud of her and the legacy that she has left for us to inspire us. But imagine if you are a family member and that legacy is connected to you. Imagine how that would be. Well, I had a chance to sit down with Gigi Coleman, the great niece of Bessie Coleman. And we talked at length about Bessie, what her personality was like, her accomplishments, and just how the family continues to share her legacy with all of us. Here's Gigi Coleman. You can't believe it. Um, I remember when the Mint Department called me, I was in shock. I think I started crying. I probably did. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, I just can't believe this. So then they said, well, we want you to help design it. So they have artists that design the quarter, but they let me pick out the ones that I liked because it was like six of them mm-hmm. that they had designed for Bessie. So I I picked out two that I, I really liked and I had to go uh, in front of the a hearing board Um uh, the deputy director of the mental part of the treasury. Mm-hmm. I had to go uh, uh, with them. It was a bunch of people, I guess. It was a Zoom like this. Yeah. And I had to say why I liked the coin. So I can invite, I could invite uh, family or anybody I wanted to, family, friends or whatever, but no one could say anything. Uh, everybody was muted but me. Uh-huh. So they got to be a part of that selecting uh-huh. part. So the ones I selected, they decided that's the ones that they liked too. And oh, so they picked great. the one I liked. I couldn't believe it. Oh, that's very special that you had a chance to do that. But rightfully so. I mean, I would think they would involve, you know, the families in, in making those decisions. But what was Bessie's uh, childhood like? Well, you know, I wasn't around back then, you know, hmm. when she was born and when she was raised. But based on what my mother and granny told me, um, she had a very loving childhood, uh, uh, very religious, because my great grandmother was very religious. And so they believed in God and going to church. And um, uh, her father, he was half Cherokee Indian. So, you know, it was a father in the house. It was a father and a mother and brothers and sisters and all that. So she had a well-rounded family structure well she had to have been a very adventurous child though i would think to grow up to want to do something that was so i mean even today i would say someone who wants to be a pilot is very adventurous but back in that time (laughs) you were really adventurous to really seek out you know becoming a pilot and the first woman african-american i mean just all of that you know, in that, during that time. So was she adventurous? What What, what did your family say no. about that? Yeah, they said she was adventurous and, and she, she, she loved challenges and um, she was respectful of her, her parents. 
Mm-hmm. And um, she, she, well, my mother said she was a no-nonsense type of person. Um, she would take her around with her um, when she had to do speeches or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't the type to, well, her character was important to her. She had values. Um, you know, some of the guys may have wanted to talk with her or something. And my mother said she would use her as a scapegoat. Well, you know, I got to take my, I got to take my niece home. It's time for a bed and stuff like that. Because, you uh, know, I guess men were going to try her and stuff, but she oh, wasn't they, that type. Well, they had to be super curious about her. Oh, yeah. I mean, just because even, like I said, even today, I think, you know, women who are very adventurous and independent like that, you know, tend to, you know, draw uh, some attention to themselves. And back in that time, I would think it just would have been a lot of people that just wanted to understand her and us right. know more about her. And, you know, she was kind of fair skinned in a way. So she could have passed for white, but she didn't. Oh, my mom was saying, you know, saying that when she had her shows and stuff, if the, the whites and blacks couldn't come in the front gate because of the Jim Crow laws, she wouldn't perform. Uh, I I knew them mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, of course, my grandmother, she was the baby. Oh, and, she was the baby? Uh, yeah, she was the 13th, and Aunt Bessie was the 10th. So, you know, they had rivalries, you know, family rivalries and things like that. And uh, my mother was saying Aunt Bessie, um, when she came back from France, my grandmother was always trying to get in her clothes and stuff like that. And my granny, she was a party animal. She got to Chicago from Wachahatchee and she went buck wild. <laughs> and uh, so that's why Bessie kind of had to take my mother under her wing and kind of take care of her. Um, Annie Lois, well, I call Annie Lois, but that was her sister too, Lois Patterson. Um, she wrote a book about Aunt Bessie, her sister. She wrote the first little book. And it was like a more of a pamphlet than anything uh, mm-hmm. talking about her sister because no one knew about Bessie Coleman. Uh, what did your family say about where her love of flying began? Sort of, um, oh, I know we mentioned that she was kind of adventurous and everything, but. I know it started too when she was, you know, down south, she saw airplanes and stuff, but she really wasn't thinking about it then. Uh, mm-hmm. She was just thinking about moving to Chicago where her brothers were, you know, lived and worked, Walter and Johnny. And um, so when they came back from the war, World War One, they started teasing her about the women over there in Europe, that some of them were flying airplanes. And so it made her curiosity. And she decided that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to be in, they call it aviatress. And so she talked to her mentor, Mr. Robert Abbott, who used to come into the barber shop where she did nails and stuff. And he always in, inspired her because, you know, she had a chili parlor on 47th in Indiana. She just did a lot of little things she did to make her little money. And um, he said, well, you know, Bessie, you never let nothing stop you. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And so she applied, but no one, you know, of course, in the States will accept her. So that's when she, Mr. Abbott said, well, why don't you go to France? And that's what she did. But before she did, she had to go to school. She learned, you know, basic French, downtown Chicago, went to school. And um, 
she just went over there and did her thing. Now, when I went to France um, for the 100th year anniversary to celebrate her, um, it was astonishing how I found out the school she went to, the Cordon School Brothers of Aviation, um, is no longer there, but the sand, and they have a museum there. Um, talking about all their, um, the, the airplanes they flew and the students, and they have Bessie, of course. But um, they were saying that the lessons that Aunt Bessie had to do, not only did she have to um, speak the language, but she had to read French too, because everything was in French. So I was like, dang, Aunt Bessie was a little genius because she <laughs> had to learn it, read it, and speak it. And then take the place in it. I know. That that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. It really is. Yeah, she was a genius. She was a genius. And then the funny thing is they always talk about Amelia Earhart, but Aunt Bessie got her license two years before Amelia Earhart. And Aunt Bessie got an international pilot license. Her license, she's the first black woman, male or female, to get that pilot license. You talk about Eugene Bullard. He was in the military. He was the first African-American, but it was a military pilot license, mm. which was different than what she got. She got an international pilot license from over there, the Federation Aeronautical International. And that particular license, they said, was renowned throughout the whole world. So she could she flew everywhere. She threw, flew in Germany, uh, just all the different places that she went, she flew. She went with William Faulkner to the Neverlands. Oh. She went everywhere. And um, when I was in France, they showed us, well, they showed us where she went to school. You know, the sand, where she learned how to fly was on this long white stretch of sandy beach. And oh. it was called, it was uh, in La Croix, La Toy part of France mm -hmm. and it is beautiful it's right off the ocean the sand and the ocean it comes it, the waves come in and out and it's like you can walk on that sand way out but then you better know when to come back in because the tides have come right back and I'm telling you it was phenomenal and then what they did that's that they have a classroom they named after Bessie Coleman mm -hmm. um, and the Cordon School uh, it's in Rue, but the school is outside of Rue. But they took everyone up on her flight plan that she went. Everybody that went with us on that trip. So we got to see the flight plan. And when I was up there, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, you could see, see Paris. I mean, you could see the Eiffel Tower. And the mayor um, in Rue, he named the all-girls school after Bessie Coleman while we were there. Mm -hmm. um, and the, 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 uh, the governor, he was there, the mayor of Rue, and um, some of my family members, you know, the ones that went with me. Mm -hmm. And um, they opened up, uh, the mayor, he opened up champagne and he was serving all the, all the guests that came. Bessie has a street named after her, LaCroix Latoy, and also in Rue. That is amazing. So what was that like for you? Because it's like oh, you were in her footsteps. I was crying. Um, what really had me in tears was I had met Miss Eugene Policy. I don't know if you know her, but she's the first African-American uh, film director. Yeah. But I met her because she was, well, she said she had spoke to my mother 
and she has showed a picture of my mother because my mother has been passed about 14 years now. And I couldn't believe she had this picture of my mother in my mother's living room. Oh. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this, this, I guess to see that picture, this is the second, first time I went to see that picture. Cause I went by myself. That's when they honored her with a classroom named after her in, um, uh, in Abbeville, Abbeville, part of France. And um, to see the picture of my mother and I'm standing right here on this sand where Bessie flew and I had my little costume on and then all these people and they were taking, they were flying people up on the sand to honor Aunt Bessie. It was too emotional. I mean, I was just really boohooing because I, I know that's what my mother wanted. She wanted people to know about Bessie. That's why in 1995, she petitioned a postage stamp for Aunt Bessie because um, she worked at the post office. She retired after 25 years. And she was kind of like Aunt Bessie. She did not take no for an answer on anything either because uh, my mother, before she retired, she was an uh, acting supervisor. But mm -hmm. when she retired, she became supervisor. She was passed over a lot of times because you know how they do you. And mm -hmm. um, she was like, nope, they're not going to pass me over. She wrote the Postmaster General. So when she retired, she was a supervisor. But uh, she petitioned the stamp and she got the stamp. And she also got a street named after Aunt Bessie in 1990 with Mayor uh, Richard M. Daly. Mm -hmm. And she she did essay contests. My mother wanted to keep Aunt Bessie's legacy alive. She wanted people to know about her. She worked with Margaret Burroughs at the DeSable Museum, who was a curator then, and Ramon Price. He was Harold Washington's brother, and he worked at the museum. So they all helped my mother, um, you know, get her name out there. And she did... Well, like I'm doing, she did guest appearances. She's supposed to be on Arsenio Hall show, but the show got canceled. So she didn't, you know, she wasn't on there. And I think I, I have letters that she wrote the presidents and Cynthia Portier had wrote my mother. And it was oh. like, I couldn't believe it. All the people that my mother had reached out and talked to. Mm -hmm. She had talked to Oprah Winfrey about doing a movie, but at that time she wasn't, nobody was interested. Um, Mm -hmm. because they just weren't you know I guess they didn't think it would be since that time mama passed and my husband David Quinn he was like well why don't you keep the legacy going I say well I don't know about all that what am I gonna do so then I thought about it and I started this one woman show and I wrote out a script based on what my mother told me about Aunt Bessie and remembering what my grandmother and um, then I did that and it was a, such a success because people were doing Bessie, but then people were like, well, I don't think I want to hire you. I want to hire, what's her name? Gigi Coleman, because she has the DNA of Bessie Coleman. And we want a real live relative. Somebody going to come out and do a Bessie. And so I'm like, I, I feel kind of bad because some people I think I've kicked out the <laughs> you know because but then I would feel the same way why would I want somebody who's not a relative to come oh, and tell a story when somebody who's a relative a living relative that could come and tell her story and I can see them get her autograph I mean it just be more meaningful to everybody involved Absolutely. so then I started um this aviation program 
which I had no idea what I was doing, but I did. And I hired two uh, aviation professionals. One, um, William Cummings, he's an aeronautical engineer, retired. So he helps with the program. He teaches the basis of flight, formations of flight, the four forces of flight, rather. What makes airplanes fly and just basically get the kids on flight simulators and things. And then Mr. Henry, Derek Henry, he's a 25-year instructor of aviation in New York. So he retired and he moved here. So I reached out to him. So he's helping in the program. He helps the kids get their drone certification because he's a drone instructor. Mm -hmm. And my role as CEO is um, talking about the history of aviation, how African-Americans got involved in aviation, about how aviation started, you know, with the balloon and the Wright brothers. And then I get the guest speakers and also get the field trips and things. So we have people come in and talk to the students from the FAA and all over. Um, we take tours, air traffic control towers. We've done... Um, certification of students in Oakland. We have a program in Oakland we, we've worked with. And so some one of the young ladies, I think she got her drone certification during virtual. And then we work with Operation Push. We work with the young kids, teaching them about aviation, grade school kids. And so we're pretty busy. We work out of Gwendolyn Brooks High School, basically work with high, um, grade school kids from the ages of 14 to and so we get them scholarships. And one of our students, Maya Coley, she's God, she's phenomenal. She she started off as a sophomore in our program and she didn't know what she wanted to do. First, she wanted to be an air traffic controller. Well, she went to school, went to Lewis University, graduated her top class in the top of her class, uh, Valedictorian. Um, she went into aviation. Then she went to Tuskegee Next. And she got her private pilot license. Then from there, she went to uh, Tuskegee's first aviation program out of New York. And now she's working as a private uh, uh, teacher instructor as well. Well, you're doing a lot. So you're definitely keeping the legacy going. But, I, you know, it's all because of my mother. You know, she was the inspiration. Uh, she started a little aviation organizations, Bessie Coleman organization. And she worked with Mr. Uh, Charles Horn from her church. A lot of people helped her from her church and stuff. And then we had like Nancy, the first African-American professor at Embry-Riddle University. So she started, um, she started, well, aviation program, not program, but aviation club to keep Aunt Bessie's legacy alive. Mm -hmm. Well, she's the president now, but before that, it was other people that were involved in things. So Sheila Chamberlain, she was one of our, uh, helped us with the 100th year anniversary. She was my chairperson. And she's the first African-American female intelligent pilot. Wow. For the Army uh, helicopter. And uh, my husband, he's a, chief, a crew chief for the Army. He was a crew chief. So he's into aviation, you know, flying. And my son, he right now, he goes to uh, AIM, which is aircraft mechanic. He's going to be aircraft mechanic. That's great. Yeah, aviation is definitely your family, for sure. Well, my cousin, he was, yeah, he flew airplanes on Arthur Freeman. He was in the service, mm -hmm. Air Force. And then he used, to, I used to go visit him in California with my mom. And he would build aircraft. 
things in his garage. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, and my other uncle, well, cousin, he was a um hell uh let's see, parachute. He jumped out the airplanes and stuff. I'd go see him in California, see him jumping out the airplanes. How did she handle the naysayers? Because she had to have had some of those. She had that, but she you know, she just I guess blocked it out of her mind. Mm hmm Like you said, she was real determined. Mm-hmm. And that, that runs in your family too. <laughs> that and belief in God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely a blessing. Definitely. So did anyone ever say anything about like what her favorite colors were? Or did she have any hobbies or anything like that? I know she just liked to read. Oh, she did. Yeah, she read. Because when she was little, she would read to her brothers and sisters. Because, you know, they couldn't read. Well, her mother couldn't read nor write. Mm -hmm. So she read to them and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it stands to reason that she loved to read. I mean, just the fact that she learned French so quickly and was, you know, able to, you know, really go. And I'm still just amazed with that. Get her pilot's license in French. <laughs> Well, you know, and what was amazing, too, to me, which I'm going to go back down to Tulsa, but, you know, that she went to college back mm -hmm. in those days. She mm -hmm. she only could go one semester because, you know, she ran out of money. But just to go to college back in those days, and it, it's just amazing. And mm -hmm. um, I think about, you know, even my mom. I don't even think mom had college. And I hear she has some nicknames, Queen Bess and... Brave Bessie. <laughs> well, what was her what was her full name? Uh Bessie Coleman. Oh, what, what's, oh what, Bessie Elizabeth Coleman. Through the years, I know there had to have been a lot of media coverage. <laughs> it's so funny, but I remember when Jerry Tapp, uh, he was the sports direct um weatherman for Channel 7 News in Chicago. Oh, and okay. I remember him coming to the house interviewing my mother. And it's just little things, you know, which I probably thought it was normal. That people were coming interviewing with my granny, but that wasn't normal. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to all girls school and most of the girls that went to that school in high school, they were all prominent. Lerone Bennett, Cecile Partee, he was a senator, A.A. Um, a. Rayner, they got this funeral home in Chicago. So all these peak girls that I went to school, they were prominent, but I didn't even think, I didn't know I was, think I was prominent, but it's just the things that you don't realize. Uh, mm -hmm. They fly over her grave April 30th. And so when I was little, you know, going to the graveyard and they would drop flowers and I would run with my other cousins and we'd pick them up. And then some of my cousins, they made it like they would go out to um, to the airport and they would see the planes and stuff. And then they would have ceremonies for Bessie and then they'd mm -hmm. come to the grave. So it was like a picnic family thing. But you know, that wasn't normal. <laughs> now, is it public knowledge where the grave is? Grave? Yes, Lincoln Cemetery. In it's in Ossip, Illinois. And she's buried at Lincoln Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And she has a beautiful tomb, you know, Ed's piece. Amazing story of Bessie Coleman. She lived quite the life. Although it may have been short, she did a lot in that time. A life that still inspires us more than 100 years later. Her legacy lives on in the work that so many people are doing and recognizing her, honoring her in various museums around the country. And the U.S. Mint, honoring her on the U.S. Mint's Women's Series Quarters Program.
I'd like to extend a very special thank you to Dorothy Cochran with the National Air and Space Museum, Sarah Fisher with the International Women Air and Space Museum, and an extra, extra special thank you to Gigi Coleman, grandniece of Bessie Coleman. Now reach in your pocket and pull out a quarter, flip it over, and you may just find the Bessie Coleman quarter. And if you do, here are a couple of museums where you can go and check out exhibits about her. The Air and Space Museum at airandspace.si.edu. The International Women's Air and Space Museum at iwasm.org. The Bessie Coleman Aviation Allstars.org. And more information about the Quartage programs, check out the U.S. Mint's website at usmint.gov. It's the host, Anita Thomas of Quarter Miles Travel, saying thanks for listening today. And make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you get all of the most up-to-date information about Quarter Miles Travel. And reach in your pocket and pull out that quarter, flip it over, and Quarter Miles Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure.